Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. Today, we're sitting down for episode 48, my friend, uh, Avi Greenberg. Um, Avi has an incredibly diverse background. He's worked in fashion and tech and anti-aging medicine. And he had this turning point in uh, his life and career where he decided he really wanted to focus on health and wellness. He actually talks about that a little bit on the pod today. Um, and he was at a time of, of burnout, of really low physical mental health, overweight, depressed, and really suffering from various forms of addiction. And he found the Wim Hof method and he adopted it as a daily practice to really harness his breath as a way to optimize and, and sometimes not even optimize, just get by and get healthier and better. And uh, you'll find today on the podcast, we talk a lot about breath work because he brings an incredible amount of knowledge there. We also talk a little bit about sauna and cold submersion, um, but Avi is a wealth of knowledge and he has gone through various trainings from XPT, Wim Hof. Um, he's a huge advocate of other breath modalities, such as the art of breath and the oxygen advantage. Um, and he helps people in the corporate world and also private clients utilize stress as a method for growth, which is, might be nice to hear that we can actually harness the power of stress um, for growth. And we talked a little bit about that today in the podcast. We also talk about um, the New York Knicks and talk about what he likes about uh, teams and organizations, what he sees on his coaching side, and literally what he sees as a fan of the New York Knicks. And uh, we kind of jam out about basketball a little bit. We talk about the breath and we really just connect as humans. And it's a very uh, informative and lighthearted and sweet episode. I hope you will enjoy it. And if you stay to the end, Avi gives us a little preview of what's to come for him and his work um, in terms of retreats and experiences. And uh, he's just a great guy with incredible energy. And um, you are in good company, my friends. So enjoy this podcast. Hey, Avi, welcome to the School of Unlearning, friend. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor, for sure. Uh, right before I pressed record, uh, you and I were jamming on our most recent purchases. Mine was a bulk supply of lint rollers because as a cat mom of two, um, all my gear, all my clothing gear is basically covered in fur. So <laughs> um, that's literally how we were prepping for our podcast just a few minutes yeah. ago. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you and I met, was it four or five years ago now? Maybe yeah, four years ago? probably like four or five. Yeah, somewhere in that zone. We met in a driveway in Ditmas Park in Brooklyn yes. through a mutual friend, Lindsay Ashman. Shout out to Lindsay. Yes. And you were just getting into the breathwork space, which is what you do now, breathwork performance for individuals, companies, um, groups of people. And that was like such a special time. I just want to like, before we get into all the cool stuff, like we had a little special crew of people every Friday night, we would gather at this driveway and sit in the sauna and then do ice baths and sauna ice bath. It was our, it was like our happy hour and yeah. the most, the most eclectic, random, weird, awesome people showed up and and that's yeah. how we met. So. Yeah. Shout out to, to Lindsay and Josh for, for putting right. that, that group together and um, just kind of opening up the space for, for you, me, Whitney, 
uh, Kimberly, you know, so many great people to like connect and be together. And I, I tell people about that, like of all the, the workshops and the different iterations of what I've done, that's the one that like I hold closest to my heart and yeah. feel like, like, I remember I used to joke with Lindsay and Josh, be like, you guys need like an intern. Like at that point yeah. I was doing workshops and I was getting paid for it, but I was still kind of like figuring it out, but I was legit happy to go there and, and work with them and work for them and work for the, that community free yeah. and just give, give that Friday night um, up to just be in that, in that space. Um, and, and luckily enough, they hired me as their intern yeah. for like the first four or five months. And then, and then, yeah, we got into a really nice flow. Um, and then obviously things changed, but that group still, you know, I still get messages from a lot of the people in that group whenever I come back to New York and they always want to come yeah. to a workshop or they just want to see how things are going. Um, so it's a, it's a really special group. It was so interesting. And sometimes I think if COVID hadn't happened, so for everyone listening was basically like every Friday night driveway in Dittmas Park, uh, paid a small fee to come and we learned how to breathe through ice and through sauna, which, you know, Avi will talk to us a lot about today, but we just met new friends and it was right before COVID happened. So we had almost a year under our belt of that experience where like every Friday night we were just kind of like unwind from the stress of New York city and like be with people who were just talking about cool, different things. And, um, I wonder what would happen if COVID didn't happen. Like how, if we would have increased frequency, if we would have gotten closer, but obviously COVID sort of broke up a lot of social networks. But, um, I think what made that so special was that it was like, I feel like we were, I know Wim Hof has been in other breathwork teachers throughout history have been doing things yeah. like this for many, many, many centuries. Um, so we weren't doing anything new per se, but I do think we were kind of a little bit on the cutting edge in New York in yeah, terms of like sure. that, that wasn't the normal thing to be happening, no. you know? No, no. And honestly, if you think about the people that were coming, um, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about like really, really like top of the food chain style people like, you know, right. Whitney, Lindsay being just elite dancers. And then I think of, you know, a guy like Taylor, who's like, CTO of like a fast growing tech startup and just really dialed into his like physical practice. And, you know, Lauren Schramm, who now is running another iteration of that, like, you know, really elite trainer here in New York, also a bass, you know, Hooper and, and just these really interesting, unique, high performing people. And then also just like, kind of like off the wall people too. Cause that's just like what Brooklyn brings. And, um, yeah. you know, you'd see people coming from Connecticut you know, I remember yeah. when and Lex came from Jersey and we had that, I forget his name, he was a firefighter coming from Staten Island. I mean, that's that's the beauty of doing this kind of work in New York is that, um, you know, I did it for a couple of years in Utah and like kind of everyone looks the same or kind of has a similar job or like same vibe, but like New York's like, oh yeah, there's a chef coming and there's a guy who plays piano in Washington <laughs> Square Park every day. The best that, part was like Friday, the lights would, it would get dark and we would sit in the sauna and look across from everyone. I'm like, I don't really know who's in the sauna, but there could well, be some yeah. legit gurus in here. Like, and, yeah, no. and someone would start talking about like, I don't know, something they thought they knew something about. And then the person across them already wrote books about that. So it was kind of like the secret club that we uh, yeah. slowly expanded. So anyway, that's how we met. And, and I guess one of the intros I would say is like, I got into breath work and um, just ice bathing in 2018, mainly for like burnout and mental health purposes. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I was really struggling. I had a couple different health things going on in my life and family stuff. And I remember thinking if I can sit through ice for two or three minutes, like if I can 
teach my body to breathe through one of the most uncomfortable feelings possible, um, yeah. then I think I can handle whatever mental health stuff comes up or life stuff. Right. And and that proved to be a huge tool for me. I remember like my first ice experience, like I did with Lindsay in middle of January it was snowing out. And I spent like nine minutes in the ice total with all this sauna exposure. Yeah. And I was like high for the next week. Like I felt yeah. like I was like an Olympian. Like it was the first time in my life I felt so clear and so strong and resilient. And so then I started to dive into a little bit of research, not as researched as you, obviously I want you to, to talk about that, but, but so that that's my intro to ice and, and sauna, but tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, it could be your origin yeah. story from young to now it could be from yeah. the pivotal moments, but tell us how, what brought you here. Yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, similar, like what you said about going through a rough period of time. Like I came to it at a, at a really rough stage. It's probably like 2016. Um, yeah. just moved back from New York back to Miami. I was in a bad relationship, um, bad living situation, bad job, like basically all, you know, <laughs> connect the dots of like, everything all- was on fire. <laughs> Everything was on fire, and I escaped New York as a lot of people do when when just things go haywire in New York. And I and I seek was seeking refuge in in my hometown in Miami and in Boca. Um, and and actually, I was going back to take care of my mom, who was going through her own mental health battle. And she moved in with me. I got my apartment in North Miami Beach, and you know I I saw this doc on whim on a uh, Vice mm-hmm. that a lot of people started with either that or the Tim Ferriss interview and. Um, I remember thinking similar to you, like if I can figure out how to get into the cold, mm. then maybe I can start to, you know, map out uh, a healing journey or a way to get out of this kind of rut, this depression, addictive rut I'm in. And also honestly help my mom. Like it was really yeah. like maybe my mom will actually get into this too. Cause she's a highly intense, interesting person that like might resonate with someone's energy like whim because whim's energy comes through on the screen and I think that's why a lot of people gravitate towards that practice as a starting point and uh, she never gravitated to it like the cold was a total turnoff I got her to do a little bit of the breathing but um for me it was really the breathing was the first Mm. show point of like oh wow this is this is something like there's something to this the cold I had trouble with the cold for 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 a bit but the breathing the breathing was something where like I dropped into a state that I was not familiar with right the first time I did the breathing and I yeah. felt really good in an extended yeah. hold and it actually brought me back to to childhood being a bored high school and middle school student and holding my breath voluntarily in class odd odd thing to do but I used to look at my watch or look at the clock in the classroom and I would say hold your breath for one minute and I would take a big inhale in and I'd and I would try to hold for a minute and, and then you I was just doing this just to play around just, just to like time. kill time like I had you know <laughs> I had early ADD you know whatever yeah. you want to call. just like couldn't sit still in a class and couldn't stop from like doing other things like leaning back Same. in my chair and like needing to go right. to the restroom three times so that was one of the things I would do to pass time and I remember I was in chapel I went to Episcopalian high school and I would literally try to hold my breath for two minutes at a time. And I, and I was like, just playing around with it. And there was something also oddly comfortable about it. And, I, and then also like swimming challenges growing up in Florida, huh. going underneath the water. And I was probably one of the best at yeah. in friends group at holding your breath and going three, four lengths under a pool. So there was always something 
calming that would shift during a breath hold for me. Mm. And obviously, you know, it now kind of makes sense why I got into that practice initially is because you're tapping into the mammalian dive reflex. You're getting into this really calm state where your heartbeat slows down, your blood pressure slows down, your mind slows down in mm. these breath holds. But I'd never done it on an exhale, which is typical of like Wim Hof breathing is you exhale all the air out, you get into a hold. And sometimes it, it, it hits and you feel really relaxed and you super dialed into your state and you just like allow your mind to wander. And then other times it's like a minute's challenging and you get fidgety and you get anxious and you feel uncomfortable, you know, every time's a little different. That's so interesting. I didn't know that about you uh, just specifically that when you were a kid, you would kind of play with breath holds. And I mean, I think a lot of kids might have memories of that or just being like, swimming at the pool and trying to yeah. hold your breath with your friends. But it sounds like there was something that you just kind of went to to like, uh, do you think now, like looking back, it was like seeking control or like playing with like the mind and body a little bit, or was it yeah. a little bit everything? I think it was definitely mind and body. I think there was definitely something about the physical challenge of seeing a number and trying to hit a specific benchmark. And I thought, yeah, I started to notice if I was agitated or I was like jittery or if I was like a little like, cause I'm one of the types of people and my wife doesn't love this where I shake my leg. Like my, I'm like kind of always like, I'm one of those people that's like always high energy and always like I could wake up no coffee and, you know, kind of hit the, hit the ground running type of person. So I, I, I need the things to slow me down, like the cold and the breathing yeah. bring me down. And there was something about the holds that were, was forcing me to slow down and that yeah. mind body connection and that kind of shift in that state really helped me to relax. That's a really, really interesting connection too. Um, so one thing I know about you is that you used to work in sort of the corporate sector and yeah. that was both good in many ways. And I yeah. remember you vaguely saying it was also one of the big turning points as to why you decided to be like, see you later, corporate America. I'm going to go start my own thing. So I kind of love to hear about the transition a bit more. And just like, yeah. again, if there was like a pivotal moment where you had like a light bulb moment and you're like, yeah. no, I got to go save myself and yeah. and start a new career. Cause that's pretty badass to do to, to yeah. leave corporate America and do this. Yeah. So. Yeah. A lot of people thought I was crazy. I mean, that's, the, and I'm sure with you, like at different points, especially yeah, I've heard that <laughs> stage of life, it's like, it's almost like the more people say that's crazy. Don't do that. It's like, that's the way I'm going to go. But, Actually um, staying is crazy. Yeah. Staying is absolutely ludicrous. That's, um, that's how I felt, you know, I felt yeah. like I stayed in a job I didn't like, and I was just chasing the paycheck. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't suit me in the long run. And I'd seen moments of like happiness um, and they were kind of never, they were never in the office setting. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of always the guy and maybe you're similar. And and I think you might be, I was always the guy at the office that people would come to when they're having a problem, like yeah. to mm-hmm. shoot shit, to like, kind of like yeah get something off their chest or to talk something through. And that was always that person, no matter what career I was in, whatever, whatever office I was always that almost like in-office therapist. And um, totally. I felt good helping people in those moments. So I always knew that that was part of something I wanted to do is to help people and be be of service in that way. Um, but then I was also chasing this, like this paycheck. I was working in a lot of different fields and a lot of different industries from tech to fashion, to healthcare, to, you know, you name it. And um, the last one was in tech. It was in this fast growing startup when we, I, you and I probably met around this time and, and I was, I was pretty unhappy in the job, but I was making more money than I ever had. I was making, you know, well over six figures, which I always thought if I hit 
over six figures and get into like this this higher sort of like tax bracket that that would be the ultimate sort of yeah. like place of happiness and i found it was actually like most in in that world find you're not actually going to get more happy with with more money it's just not going to work no. that way and yeah. uh i was climbing a mountain in mexico with a another wim hof instructor friend he had organized this expedition to go climb Pico de Orizaba, which is the third highest mountain in North America after Denali. And I don't remember the second mountain, but it's it's high. Um, wow. I didn't prep. I didn't train for it. I was living at sea level in New York. I thought I yeah. could like spin classes and breathe a little in. confident, are we yeah, huh? overly <laughs> confident, breathe through my nose in a spin class and do some weird breath holds, you know, throughout my day and see if that would help to out you know, to acclimate to altitude without actually being in altitude. And Anyway, I ended up having a really rough time on that mountain. Uh, I climbed to like a certain level, like to what was called the glacier. And at yeah. the glacier, you're supposed to put your crampons on. You're supposed to tie yourself up to two other people. But my body had given out then. So mm -hmm. I was like kind of shaking. I was starting to get into like early altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I'd been sweating, climbing. We were climbing it at, 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 in moonlight. It was at midnight. We started our ascent. Um my buddies were going really fast. They all lived in Mexico city. They all had trained for this. They all were prepping for this. Like you should like any smart individual should. So they were geared up. I mean, they were flying frankly up the mountain and I couldn't keep up with their pace, wow. but I was trying to. And as I got higher and higher, I kept telling myself, you're never going to make it down. How are you going to get down? Cause you know, it's, it's, you're climbing at points and it's dark, it's pitch blackout. And, uh, Anyway, I got I got to that point. The guide that was leading my section said, no, you've gone too far. We're going to go back down. Mm. We went down a lot of slipping, a lot of falling, a lot of like humbling moments, but uh, a real sense of clarity, like kind of like you might have in an ice bath or in a really highly intense situation. But this was like a five, six hour experience. Yeah. And I basically decided on that mountain. I'm like, I'm quitting when I get home. Like it wasn't like like I didn't have this like this like epiphany. It was just kind of like you don't like this thing you're doing. You're just like stop it. Yeah, you're, you're pushing yourself right now to the limit, and you have nothing left in your tank. And it's kind of like it's kind of like if you get a diagnosis, and they tell you you're not going to make it. Are you going to stay at the job you hate? Are you going to start your life over and actually do the thing you want to do for a year or whatever? Let's say the diagnosis is one year left to live. You're going to do the thing you want to do. And I kind of didn't get a diagnosis, but I got to the precipice of what I thought was the end. And I thought, well, I'm the, I'm done wasting my time. I'm going to go back and I'm just going to call it. And, and literally I, we went back to Mexico city after the climb. I spent two nights in Mexico city. I flew back to New York. I got in bed the first night with my wife in our small Chelsea apartment. And I thought mm -hmm. I had never felt better in my life. Like, you I know, from a hiking camping trip, yeah. you know? So you get in your bed, you're like, oh my God, my shitty small apartment, my loud neighbors, I missed all of this crap. And then I get to work the next day and that was it. I didn't even, I didn't even like wait. I told, uh, the VP of sales was in town. He was like, wanted to meet with me for five, 10 minutes before he left back to Boston. And I just said, Hey man, listen, I'm done. I'm not going to, I don't want to do it anymore. And it was like 10 minutes to explain to him you know, why, which he still, I still think to this day, he doesn't, he doesn't understand, but I Jeez. just said, I just, I'm doing this other thing. At that point, I'd been teaching workshops on the side 
Um, and I just said, I want to just do this thing all in. Like, I want to go all in on this other thing I'm doing. And he kept thinking I was interviewing with another tech company, like Arrival or something. And he's like, we just negotiated a new package. Like, you're going to make a lot more money. Like, you're about to have this huge year, this huge quarter, like the numbers, the sales, the money. I was like, dude, none of that, none of that speaks to me anymore. Yeah, like, I, good. I really, listen, I obviously would love to, to be able to like, you know, make these commissions and then leave, but if I have to stay to see everything through, then I'm not going to do that. And yeah. I, I gave, I gave him a quarter though. I gave him two months, three months. I, I, I stayed for another two, three months and then I left and I was able yeah. to kind of plan, plan the exit that way. Yeah. You know, you speak a lot about sort of like, uh, having both feet in both worlds, uh, sort of in the full-time space. And then also you were dabbling, you were researching, you were doing some, some work yeah. with breath and, and sort of just knowing that, uh, that was there. And and you had like a pivotal moment where you're on this mountain and you're struggling, you you thought you might be better than you were, but your body had a sort of humbling experience and, yeah, and, and breath, breath was, uh, not available to you. It sounds like yeah. not in, not in the way that you had thought it would be. Yeah, totally. That's that's a, a certainly a good moment to 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 pivot. Um, yeah. When we think a little bit about breath, uh, people who are listening here, and we're going to talk about a lot of things today. But w- w- why do people need to pay attention to the breath? Like, what's the big deal? We breathe automatically; we don't have to think about it. Like, yeah. why should someone here um, in a job, burnout, parenting? Why does it matter for us to be talking about this today? Yeah, it's. Um it's, it's, it's the foundation, foundational movement to everything else. Everything else is built off of the breath. Yeah. If you're dealing with insomnia or issues sleeping at night, if you're tend to be anxious or stressed, um, the only thing you can really do is, is, I mean, you could obviously take medicine and have a medical intervention, but breathing is shown to, to lower blood pressure just as effectively as medication or exercise. If you're having issues with cognitive function and you have attention deficit disorder or you're hyperactive mm. and you need to slow down, breathing's shown to, to help you slow down and help you be able to concentrate more. The exhalation yeah. can actually help your short-term memory. Nasal breathing can help your cognitive function, can help clear up your brain. You know, we're, we're becoming more disconnected from our bodies you know yep. we're we're on these devices in these in these situations where we're not really feeling ourselves anymore we're we're sort of tuning out outside of our bodies and um breathing is the one thing i think that everyone can do whether you're a prof- professional athlete or you're someone that's dealing with a debilitating disease like als or parkinson's mm-hmm. or alzheimer's yeah you know, it's it's what you have yeah it's what you have it's what you have. And, you know, I, I think of this Jay Shetty quote often where he talks about going to the school for the monks. Mm-hmm. And what's the first thing they teach the children when they're, they're going to become monks is they teach them how to breathe because it's the first thing you have when you're born. And it's the last thing you have when you die. That's and right. basically a standard throughout. And it's not, not to be cliche, but I mean, and it's not to say that I won't be disconnected from my breath. I can tell you, you know, as a new father of two, um, the last three years, there's been plenty of times where like, I'm holding one of my crying babies in the middle of the night, and I'm really tired. And all I want this, all I want to happen is for this baby to go to sleep. Yeah. And there's plenty of nights where I've been completely disconnected from my breath. But yeah. I can see the nights where the baby has been able to relax and get soothed 
faster have mm-hmm. been the nights where I've actually tuned into my tension and my mm-hmm. stress. And I've been able to slow that down and relax my, my grip on the baby, relax my jaw, relax my breathing. And then all of a yeah. sudden that energy is almost contagious. And it's like, you know, if you're around a friend or a partner or a, a colleague and they're hyper anxious and they're really stressed out and you feed that energy, I mean, all this energy we exchange, we take on, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's something where if you can be that calming force around for the people around you, then all of a sudden you can, you can actually make a difference in other people's physiology, in the way they communicate and the way 100%. they're information. Yeah. So, you know, there's really not one person that you couldn't work or they couldn't improve upon their breathing, whether it's an elite athlete that's trying to recover better or perform better at the most stressful moments, or someone that's really dealing with a lot of health issues, a lot of yeah. health elements. I like how you said the breath is the breath is it. It's like why we're here. And it also brought me to this idea of like, it's like one of the, I don't know, like attention span. Okay. It's a resource. We certainly need it, but we could live a life without a very good attention span. Like we could have some sort of life, um, you know, energy, we could be low energy throughout our life, but we could, we still have a life. Um, if you take away the breath, it's like, we don't have, we actually don't have a life. <laughs> like we need to learn how to regulate this tool. And it also, it's like relationships. It's like, I was never taught how to breathe as a kid. Not really, not, I didn't understand the rhythms, the cadences, how to use the breath to get focused, to get relaxed, to get energized. I had no idea until I was my mid thirties, but it's also like relationships. It's like some of the most important things on the planet and no one really tells us how to do them. We just kind of like, we we have dysfunctional patterns until they become like eruptions, right? And we have meltdowns. Yeah. And, and, and it's, if there's a, there's an article or a study that talks about panic attacks don't happen out of the blue. There's typically a one right. hour, maybe less than mm. an hour, but somewhere, somewhere around an hour of warning signals for someone that's going to go to a panic attack state, like or a state where they lose com- control of their breathing. They start to hyperventilate yeah. and it's fairly common. I mean, a lot of people are dealing with these high levels of anxiety and if they're not connected to their breath, like you said, not not being taught at any point in time how to breathe or how to slow down your breathing or how to how to register that your breathing's getting elevated and what's that doing to you, it can be really scary. I mean, I I know sort of right before, maybe four or five years before I started getting into this stuff, I started getting anxiety in the car. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I would be driving South on 95 here in Miami and I'd be going from Boca down to where I lived in Miami. And there's this stretch of highway where it, it's this big, wide kind of swooping turn. You don't really turn, but the whole, the whole interstate kind of veers a little bit out and it's this big, wide turn. And there was something about it that felt like very out of control to me. And I used to get anxious leading up to it. Like I'd see the, the exits leading up to is Ives Dairy. And I'd see like four exits ahead of Ives Dairy, three exits, two exits. Then I could notice I was getting more tense and anxious as this exit was coming because I knew this wide sweeping turn was going to come. And eventually got to the point where like I was getting like lightheaded and like yeah. I'm driving 80 miles an hour. Sometimes I have family in the car. Sometimes I have a friend, whatever. And I'm like in control of this moving vehicle that's going 80, 70 miles an hour. And I'm, here I am like, completely disconnected from my breathing, completely disconnected from my body in some sense. And it, it it's funny because now I, I drive 
past that part. I'm like, oh man, like I've even still feel it sometimes. Like I feel like, oh wow, this is still kind of stressful, but I know what to do in those moments. But if I yeah. didn't know what to do, and let's say this thing had persisted for four, five, six, seven years, I might not even want to drive past that that point on the highway. Yeah, you, you know? might have so, created like a bit of a, an aversion, like association. So it sounds like a little bit of what you're saying is that the breath is not just probably the most important, but one of the obviously the biggest sort of like um, uh, messengers. Yeah. Like, yeah. If it starts to get really short and shallow, we might begin to be like, oh, something's going on with my nervous system, my mental health, or, um, ner- you know, so tell us a little bit of how, how maybe we could, how we could like pay attention to our breath and like what it might mean if it's shallow or if it's really fast or if we're, uh, you know, sort of frozen and we don't even notice that we're breathing anymore. I mean, there's a lot there, but anything, yeah. anywhere you want to jump off. Yeah, totally. You know, I think, I think two good ways to think about it is um, our conscious breathing is like when we decide how we're going to breathe, we can breathe fast, slow, deep, shallow, nose versus mouth, pause, Mm -hmm. holding, just straight back and forth breathing. And then also breath awareness is just creating awareness around your breath and just noticing, noticing those little details, those nuances that often go unnoticed, like creating that awareness around it. So that way, you know, like, oh, wow. I spent the last two minutes like breathing through my mouth. I'm not even sure why. Oh, I'm about to like hop on a work call and Mm -hmm. it's with someone I really have been avoiding talking to or something like that. You start to create awareness. So when I work one-on-one and I'm coaching someone, that's kind of one of the first things I try to teach them or talk to them about is outside of this guided session where I'm having you consciously breathe in a specific way. The goal is that outside of these sessions before our next one, at least four, five, six, seven times, you create awareness around how you're breathing. And most of the time mm-hmm. we, we have awareness when we're in a moment of like exertion or stress. And a lot mm-hmm. of times workout, like if you're playing basketball, you're lifting weights, you're very aware of your breath there. Or if you're in a really stressful situation, you might notice you're like holding your breath a lot. Yeah. So, you know, around those moments, that's when I would say to lean into like deeper slower, fuller breaths and extended exhales. The exhale is the thing that's going to slow you down. It's the thing that's going to relax you. It's going to calm you down. And then obviously too, as, as a lot of, I'm sure your listeners know, and people are starting to realize your nose is, is the way we access a calm state to our nervous system. By breathing through your nose, you're sending your body a signal that it's okay to relax a little bit more. So if you think yeah. about getting into the cold or the ice for the first time, what's the initial breath? It's going to be like a short spastic inhalation, like a, yeah, because they're panicking and they're stressed and they're anxious and they're tense and they're feeling like this, like air is being sucked from them. So, so what would we do as a guide or a coach is we try to get them to force an exhalation out, even if it's through the mouth, just create an exhale, a long one. And that will give you an opportunity to actually take a fuller, deeper breath in as opposed to that staccato, short, spastic inhalation. So then once they get control of that long exhale, maybe then that next inhale can be nasal. And it's the same for life. Like in a, in a stressful moment, maybe it's as, I always try to have a vocalization on an exhale where you, ah, you just like, let it go. You know, it's yeah. called the sigh relief for a reason, a physiological yeah. sigh, something to just, like, let it out, like, let it go and then go nasal, you know, really like we spend so much time as humans, like being stoic and strong and trying to keep everything in where we don't actually let it out. Like, you know, and, and, and then about 
talk about unlearning, like most of our lives have been like no affect, like try not to be emotional, try not to let people know we're basically breathing and living things. Like that's what most of our things have been. You said something really important here. I just want to double tap on that. This spastic energy, when we breathe in our mouth, like say through fitness or through some sort of high intensity life thing. I mean, at at some levels of like fitness, you do need to breathe through your mouth, right? It's like sprinting. It's not going to be long. So nasal, it's going to be probably some mouth. But also I remember I did a workout with Lindsay and through XPT and we did like three hours of like weightlifting and core only nasal breathing. So our pace was slower, but it was our first practice. And I remember it was the most refreshed I'd ever felt during a workout in my life. I I didn't feel drained. I didn't feel scattered and we did some hard stuff, but because they had like, was pretty strict. It was like in the nose, out the nose only um, for this CrossFit workout. I, the next day I was like, I felt like I barely worked out. Like I wasn't stressed. I wasn't achy. So can you tell us a little bit about just like the, like in fitness, how important it is to find times to harness this long exhale through the nose? Yeah long exhale, and also just the fact that you, you have more autonomy in your breath. So, you know, when I, when I used to work out a lot, like in the gym, like in the boutique fitness world, like I always think back to like the days of taking a Barry's bootcamp class and seeing a row of treadmills, like in the dark, basically with red light or like, like, like fluorescent lights, like this, like, and everyone's standing in the mirror. And it's like this, like, like running, breathing through the mouth, you know, first, first warm up, like run. And then, you know, as the class goes on, you see these people are physically, they look like they're in really great shape, but then we're in a 45 minute or hour class. And then we're at that last run or that last stretch. And they've been breathing exclusively through their mouth the entire time. So they have nowhere else to go. Yeah. They're literally have been in their top breathing, like space from the beginning of the class started till the end of class. So if you and Lindsay or someone's working out and you're breathing through your nose, you're regulating your blood pressure, you're regulating your heartbeat at a mm. much lower pace. Mm-hmm. So I think often to Hicks and Gracie is a, probably the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, player of all time. You know, he's been, he's, he's known for, you know, just the highest peak performer. And he talks about controlling his heartbeat before a fight. Um, the day of the fight, keeping his heart rate low. And then when the fight starts, he's able to modify his breathing to keep it even lower as the fight's going on. His opponent's heart rate is rising, but he's able to keep his heart rate to like zone one, zone two, as his opponents in zone three, zone four, zone five. And you have that, you have that mechanism by breathing in a calm way, by utilizing nasal breathing, you're basically sending your body and your nervous system a signal that it's okay to relax. It's okay Mm. to be control. You know, when you're out of control with your breathing, things go haywire. And, you know, as, as a basketball player, and you know, if you haven't played for a while and you get out on the court and it's your first time playing in months or a year or something, you're like, yeah, from the opening tip. But if you can stay nasal and calm and keep your breathing under control, like, yeah, when you're making an action or a movement to the hoop or you're playing defense against the best scorer, yeah, you might breathe through your mouth, but then there's a break in the action. Use your nasal breathing to slow the heart rate back down, to get back into a state that's more comfortable, that's more in, in line, as opposed to hyperventilating or breathing hard and fast the whole game. You're sending your body and your heart rate to like zone four, zone five, when you can drop it down, there's actually recently a, a post I, I, I said, I shared on Instagram of, of Steph Curry talking about how he utilizes breathing 
in timeouts to lower his heart rate. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, it sounds really complex. And I had a few people reach out like, well, what's the technique? I mean, the techniques as simple as just extending your exhales or maybe even humming out using a yeah. hum to yeah. release an exhale and slowing down your exhale and creating a pause at the top. All these things enable you to play at a higher level as yeah. game yeah. wears on. And when people get more tired, that's why you see certain players like, you know, this season in the NBA, they had the clutch award for the most clutch player, which they never had before. So it was like De'Aaron Fox and like three other dudes who are in the mix for it. I mean, there's a reason why certain guys play best when the stakes are highest, when they're, they're everyone else is gassed, when everyone else is tired, these guys have an extra gear. And yeah. it's possible par partly because they're able to maintain that aerobic efficiency throughout the whole game. But then when things are more stressful, they still have gas in the tank and they're still able to kind of dial that in. Well, I think it's a great example about Steph. I want to, I was actually going to bring that up and maybe I did see it on your page, but I was like, oh, I want to talk about that, that article I saw. But I also think too, like these guys or these women out there who are performing in the, the sports world at a high clip at the very end when everyone else is fatigued, I think to your point earlier is that like, the long exhale, the the taking time to kind of you think about it like um I think about it like a little bit like a pendulum swing. We have a lot of sympathetic stress. We breathe through yeah. the mouth. We have sprints, and then we do have a timeout. And most players don't use that yeah. uh, to their advantage. They just keep spastically breathing and out of the mouth, talking. Yeah. And the best players train their mind and their body. To your point with Steph, to to get into a different state so they can recover mentally to have clear thinking and clear strategy. And it's like it's. It's uh, what I use in my, my corporate training. I just call it state management. And one of the things I say a lot to my clients is just like, you know, Beyonce, when Beyonce goes to perform, any singer goes to perform, you know, this, like they, they work on some technique with the breath for sure. Yeah. Speakers, TED speakers, like they do some breath work before yeah. and, and then athletes. And then we go into the corporate world and people like forget that they're humans and they're like, well, I don't have a minute to breathe or I don't have a minute. I'm like, they're CEO of a company and you don't have four minutes to regulate your body. Okay. And they're like, they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you're at the top at the top of your field. Why right. are you expecting that you're beyond, like you're not beyond reproach here. Like you right. have to do these things. So I don't know if you see that a lot. Cause I know you do some yeah. sports with some athletes and also some people in the corporate sector, but why is there such a gap for people who work in businesses and companies to like get that they have to learn how to regulate their humanity and their nervous system. Yeah. Why is it like taken for granted? Yeah, I think, I think at least from what I've seen, cause I, I do work. I mean, I'd say the majority of the people I work with are C-level executives, um, all different fields, all different industries, but you know, CEO to COO level people, the younger, the younger demographic, the younger people I work with. Yeah. And it's not to be ageist, but the older, the older sector is different than the younger. I think that's the, that's the yeah. one major difference I'm seeing is that the older sector tends to still hold on to the idea of, you know, you can, you can, you, there's no such thing as burnout. You can work through anything, you know, add more to the table. If you're stressed, just keep adding, adding, putting on more putting is on. better. Yeah. More is better. And, um, you know, I was working with this, this financial company, a small company, um, you know, venture capitalist company, and we we're doing monthly sessions that the HR team brought me in for. And the CEO was, was an old Goldman guy, Goldman Sachs guy, and he was just so against it. 
and and meanwhile he had you know some cardiovascular issues there's a lot of stuff going on with him and his stress in his life and and whatnot but there was no, he never attended one session i did maybe 15 with them and and i had a lot of people coming repeat people and they would tell me they would do the session once a month on friday and they would feel so much better the rest of the day and they so start much. to forward to yeah. it and I, you know and and it was typically the younger employees um so i think i think you know I think there's definitely a, a sense where the older generation thinks of the younger generation as a bit softer. You know, even my dad, my dad's an ER doctor and he talks about how residency when he was going through medical school and whatnot was a lot harder now. I mean, back then than what it is now. And it's almost like a badge of honor for him when he talks about it. Yeah. But that oh. badge of honor is also something that, you know, that that wears these people out, you know? It comes with a cost. It definitely um, so uh, let's go back into this worst world here. Besides Steph Curry, who else are some of the athletes or just s- examples you've heard or cases you've heard of athletes really using the breath to, to um, recover, to perform and who yeah. just like are kind of out there doing it. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I think in the MMA world where it's getting more and more popular, um, mm-hmm. thanks to the UFC uh, training Institute, uh, Israel Adesanya is, um, is a, UFC champion right now he's maybe considered the best pound for pound fighter in the UFC he's definitely in the conversation and he works with a guy out of New Zealand named Rob Wood and um another thing I posted on my Instagram maybe a year ago one of my clients sent it to me who is a collegiate wrestler and now he runs a company in Chicago mm. he's big into jujitsu too and he sent me this this interview that Israel did with a, a woman after a fight um the you know the the interviewer asked, she said, you know, you looked, you looked like you were totally fine. The whole fight, you never looked out of breath. You never opened your mouth. Mm-hmm. And he basically gave all the credit to his, his training coach, Rob yeah. Wood. And, you know, he, he takes the rounds and he downregulates his breathing during the fight. You see him with his mouth closed. He's training that that's not just something, I mean, maybe he had a good, he had a good engine before that, obviously to get to that stage, but he's training it very specifically with very specific protocols in the pool. He's in the pool a lot. He's doing a lot yeah. of breath. a lot yeah. of XPT style stuff, but I'm guessing this guy, Rob Wood's got his own, his own curriculum that he's getting him to go through. I think also, you know, different sport, you know, back to basketball though, LeBron, I think LeBron's utilizing he must be. as much as many techniques as he can to recover. You know, he's definitely yeah. taking his game to another level at this stage. Um, and then, you know, you, you look at the greats, you know, you, you, you hear old interviews with Kobe and he talks yeah. about meditation and he talks about slowing things down. And, um, you know, and I think anybody that's playing at that high of a level, you know, even Tiger Woods has talked about his breathwork practice and, and he's a free diver as well, which free diving is basically <laughs> another form of, of breath. I didn't know that. The pool. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tiger goes down. I think Tyra goes down like 60, 80 feet in the water on wow. one breath and spearfish wow. down there. And he's, he's pretty intense. He, obviously he's doing the cold too. He talked about Phil Mickelson, um, another, you know, legend golfer, um, not even a big golf fan, but you just, you know, as, as someone that teaches this stuff, you aggregate all the news and you see it come in. But Phil Mickelson talked about winning a recent, a recent major tournament. And, and they were talking to him about his breathing in between shots. Cause mm. about these shots. And I remember talking to Connor too, after we met at fire and ice, who was an NHL player, 
what do you do in those moments in the downtime between the big shot or the line shift or the timeout? How do you bring yourself back down to a grounded, centered state, but you're still in control, you're still focused? And yeah, yeah. really, the breathing will do that for you. It will slow you down. It will get you into a calmer state, but you're still yeah. hyper-aware, hyper-focused. And then there was another thing, another buddy of mine, Steve Kaminsky, sent me recently about Shaka Smart, the, the coach, mm-hmm. college coach. He had his team during the tournament. It didn't work out because I think they ended up losing that game, but during a timeout in the most critical part of the game, he had them do some sort of breathing exercise as opposed to running, as opposed to running over like a set or a game plan. Yeah. 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 Had them all come down and relax. So, you know, I think it's more prevalent. I think, I think, especially in the sports world, you know, these teams, they're investing millions, hundreds of millions, you know, tens of millions of dollars into their facilities, into their teams. These are billion dollar teams you're talking about. You know, if, if there's a way to get them to perform a little bit better at the end of the games, even just a fraction better, they're going to invest in it. It's so interesting. All the data out there, all the wearables, everything. And it's like the breath is free, yo. It's yeah. free. Just use yeah. it like as a team. One of yeah. the barriers I think that prevents like C-suite executives, leaders, and most of the people who I work with, it's part of our contract. They end up getting into some form of like walking meditation or, you know, seated meditation and breathing, and they end up becoming friends with it in a way that works for them. But I I think it's, I think it's vulnerability. I think people don't want to like take the leap and be like, Hey, I'm the new VP of a team of 10 and, uh, we're going to do something new for the next two minutes. We're just going to like turn off our screens and we're just going to take a bunch of breaths and just get really present. People don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to be like the, oh. the the new kid on the block doing some earthy, crunchy stuff. And I'm like, yo, we're already breathing. We might as well just bring some attention to it. Like to me, that's leadership. But I mean, yeah, that's sure. and listen, you've done enough corporate sessions, and you see, like, there's certain companies, the culture where you, I've done corporate sessions with companies like Netflix and Samsung and American yeah. Outfitters and like big companies and Goldman Sachs. And the moment you give everyone permission to turn off the cameras, the cameras are off. Nobody wants yeah. to be. Nobody wants yeah. to be seen in that way. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate because then you're not being open to being seen when you're struggling or when you're having a good moment or a bad moment. You're sort of like disconnected from that whole experience. Um, yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I, my hope is that it changes quite a bit. I just did a really cool training for a big company and it was a, a lot around state management and uh, the breath was one of the tools we we talked about. And a few of the people were like, yeah, I've been thinking about it every day. And I'm like, just do it every day. Don't think about it. <laughs> you know, I'm happy it stayed with you. It was resonant, but do it. Um, also, as we're talking about sports too, I want to give a shout out. My first memory of actually breath in sports was a uh, shout out to my dad. Um, he came home from work and he would have a suitcase in hand and he would put it down. He would grab the ball. My sister and I, my brothers would be playing in our New Jersey driveway and he would take the ball. He would take a few dribbles at the foul line and he would go. Yeah. Like he was really, he exaggerated it. Like he was really dramatic about it. I remember being like a little bit like, dad, you're so weird. What are you doing? And he was like, he's like, no, you have to take a deep breath before you take that foul shot because then you get, you get all the jitters out was how kind of how he explained it. But, uh, and I don't think he knew the science, but he knew it allowed him to like, 
get yeah. all the anxious energy out and to, and to execute the foul shot, which of course is a very strategic shot. You're not necessarily in movement flow. You're, you could overthink it. You could miss the totally. foul shot. Yeah. So I remember being in middle school, being introduced to breath that way. And that was like the only way, but I still do it to this day. And I kind of, I overemphasize it kind of on purpose. Cause I want people to notice. <laughs> I want them to be like, this is shout weird, out but yeah, like, shout out. Is, and also like, try it out. Or, I'm yeah, shooting totally. like a 90%, I think from the line. So pay attention. No yeah. kidding. Um, the best shooters. I mean, they all, they all have this, like these rituals. And I think part yeah. of it is, is the ritual of it. So like, there was no surprised when it was Steph Curry who said he had this ability to slow his heart rate down in between timeouts you know it's this ritual of of connecting to your breath and yeah the more connected to you to you you are to your breath I just think the higher your ceiling is going to be in performance in life in the office in the field on the court wherever it is and and all of a sudden it too I've been taking tennis lessons lately and my tennis coach told me the other day, we're in like our third, fourth lesson and maybe our second. And he tells me, he goes, every time you hit the ball, just push the air out through the mouth. And normally I'd be like, very like, no, I got to breathe through my nose. But I was like, whatever this guy says, I, I'm coachable. Just tell me. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he gave me five instructions as well with other points on of emphasis. But the moment I started exhaling as I hit the forehand, the yeah. forehand so much cleaner so much cool. nicer it's like it takes it takes all the other sort of thought out of the equation and you're just like just let it go just yeah. like that you when you're so, bad saying that thing it's like it's just just letting it go just let that stress go okay so now i think we're gonna get into some juicy stuff here someone sent me a post the other day and they were like calm is the goal and i was like no it's not <laughs> Like <laughs> expression is the goal. <laughs> like getting calm is a really amazing tool. Like we need yeah. it in times of stress and times of critical decision making. That you can get there is super invaluable. And I from what you're teaching us, the long exhale helps us do that sometimes. But I also want us to kind of get into this idea of like uh yeah, calm, long exhale, nasal breathing isn't always the thing, and, and neither is Wim Hof's method always the thing. And so yeah. Maybe just talk to us a little bit about what the wellness world needs to unlearn about um, being calm, or like like you said, you had been trained to kind of like you know work out with with nasal breathing, but now this coach prompted you to say just let it rip and like exhale through the mouth, yeah. and you felt something totally. different. So just walk us through like what we need to kind of like gut check there. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it's it's an interesting point to think about now because. Things are changing. I mean, when you, you know, you and I got into doing cold and breathing and fire and ice, I mean, we were sort of outliers, kind of like a weird thing. And now it's becoming way more synonymous with the health and wellness world. And 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 listen, that's a great thing. Like, I don't want to be in yeah. the club where nobody else knows about it. But yeah. I think we're also getting to a space now where there's so much science coming out and there's a lot of disputing ideas around it or there's a lot of people that are considered authorities within the space because you know they're they're major influencers they have a lot of you know a big a big following all these other points of interest and i think we're losing we're losing sight of some of the other benefits that are not quantifiable mm-hmm. like everything is really getting very specific on well, how long do I stay in the cold or how long should I hold my breath for? Or how long should I do this? Or what's the measurement on that? And this, that, the other, and everything is being measured and tracked in such a way 
that we're disconnecting from our own visceral mm. qualitative experience. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I would love for people to just start to listen to their bodies more, like get mm. back into that place where like, just cause your aura ring said you had a really bad night of sleep or a really good night of sleep. Like, how do you <laughs> actually feel? Yeah. Like, actually feel yeah. like, instead of me telling you the goal for the ice bath is X number of minutes because a doctor that I've never even done an ice bath with has said that that's the, that's the goal. Why don't you just connect to your breathing in the ice and then ha- see how that feels Yeah, and, and figure out what's an appropriate time for you. Cause maybe what you get feels into- good to you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think mm-hmm. the science is amazing. I think it's still really early on for a lot of it. And I mm-hmm. think we're getting kind of too inundated with these Instagram and these short reels on this person doing it and that person doing it and how long they do it for how, what, what's the benefits for this or that or the other, like, like you and me, like when we got started on it, like we needed something to like help us mentally and emotional space and help get through things. And there's no time, there's no prescribed time or dosage for that experience. Yeah. That takes time and you have to actually really connect with yourself there. If I was yeah. going in there and I was being disconnected from the experience because I've got some quantitative number or some goal. Missing the point. I'm missing the whole point because yeah. part of the point is changing the way my brain focuses around stress and changing the way I respond to stress. And if That's I'm right. only fixated on the number, then I'm not actually really connected to that whole conversation that I need to have. Yeah. It's missing the point. And it's also a form of disassociation. It's another form of wellness disassociation. Yeah. Which is a really big thing these days in like, whether it be fasting or um, again, forms of biohacking or anything like that. And I'm like all for it. I played with all the things I've used them all kinds of different ways. (laughs) But I think to your point, it's like, if we're not paying attention to how our body, our mind, our our sensations are moving through the body and we're just paying attention to a metric or a number, we are missing the experience and we're missing the possible benefit. And there's data in there that we need to really kind of say like, all right, my sleep score was a 72, but I feel so happy and alive. So, Hey, let's roll with that. And instead we get so we second guess ourselves. We put data ahead of intuition and I don't I think that's a wise idea. Oh, for sure. You know? Especially because this is all new science. I mean, even the rings and the wearable tech, like, yeah, there's yeah. great benefits to it. But a lot of the smart people that that I listen to on this stuff, they say, you got to look at like the big picture patterns. So like for yeah. me, wearable tech, I got the aura ring, you know, my wife got for me for my birthday last October. So the things I've been able to see that have actually helped me understand my sleep better. If I go to sleep past or later than like 9 45, 10 o'clock, it doesn't make a difference if my baby doesn't wake up in the night. If I sleep through the night and I go to bed at 10 30 at night, it's a worse night of sleep typically than if I go to sleep earlier than nine and my baby wakes up twice. Like I can wake up oh. a couple times in the night and have a higher quality sleep based on the score than if I go to sleep later and I don't yeah. wake up, I'm not well, disturbed. That- Kind of makes sense, but that's yeah. good data. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. It was good to actually like see that come to fruition many yeah. nights over, you know, and yeah. like things like that were like, oh, okay. So no matter what, I should be in bed by 9 30. Like that, yeah. that should be like a non negotiable. Obviously, it doesn't happen always, yeah. but like it's good to know that, that that's actually something that would be a good achievable goal. So when yeah. I work with my clients who most of them have some form of 
wearable tech and we're talking about these things, it helps me sort of illuminate around, well, why are my sleep scores better? I'm like, well, then what time are you going to sleep at yeah, night? We yeah. can have that conversation as opposed to, you know, mouth tape or no mouth tape or what temperature is the room and all these other factors. So you many know? things. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, just like, let's just boil it down to simple, simple points. Well, I took this course years ago by this guy, uh, Dr. Karazian, and he he runs a lot. He's like a Harvard professor. He's a doctor and he um, just studies a lot about the brain and metabolic function and stuff and all kinds of things. He's sort of like in the functional medicine field, one of the key voices that has helped influence a lot of the people in the field. So uh, I took a lot of his courses and what I loved about it was back then, it wasn't that long ago, there were like blood sugar monitors back then, but they weren't like the ones that were like 24 seven. They're the yeah. ones where you just prick your finger and you can tell if you're low blood sugar or high blood sugar or somewhere stable. But he taught us ways to just look at symptoms, which I know sounds really radical, but I still go back to it all the time. Yeah. And simple things like if I'm hungry, if, if I'm technically like low blood sugar, I know we're moving into a different topic, but the parallel example here is I may not always feel hungry, but I'll know if my blood sugar is low, if I can't focus or if I'm irritable, or right. if I get a little sad. And, and yeah. those are actually the best ways for me to know if I'm low fuel, then right. more than hunger. Sometimes with heat or grief, I don't feel hunger because yeah. your hunger mechanism turns off. So I yeah. learned all these different ways to be like, oh, I actually can't focus. Oh, I'm totally low blood sugar. That's why. So right. I think it's really cool to become a student of your body. I think it's like our job. And I think these, yeah. these tech devices are like part of it. But um, yeah, I think your your point here about like really tapping into like, what does your body need versus five minutes in the ice or a longer breath hold is the most important thing for everyone here is this craze continues to evolve and yeah. um, hopefully develop too. Yeah. What are you most excited about in this space of, of your work these days? And like, what are you looking forward to like as a next part of your evolution? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I think right now, I'm I'm excited to to start to create programming for for people to to have all the time like to start recording things and putting stuff out there of me working with individuals or or professional athletes and having having something that a tool that people can access when yeah. I'm not necessarily live with them. I've spent the last 3 4 years doing you know, thousands of hours of one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I'll continue to do, but to be able to, to give people that I might not connect with, you know, and do a one-on-one -on -one session with an opportunity to maybe follow along in a breathwork session that I'm going to offer virtually, but recorded. Um, that's definitely something I'm, I'm going to work towards in the next six months. And then on top yeah. of that too, coming up with like new experiences, like retreat style experiences, like experiences to get people, you know, out of their malaise of day to day, and just take them somewhere in nature with good yeah. food, good friends, like making new, new friendships and really just get them into a place that, that feels connected to their body. You know, I know, I know how disconnected I felt to my body and how I'm just kind of getting into that whole space now and really learning about my body better. And yeah. um, just trying to come up with really, cool sort of adventures for people to, to access. Cool. Sign me up for those adventures, buddy. Yeah. Um, yeah sure. I know we want to jam about a few important things. Uh, how are you feeling about the next season? 
You know, I, I feel good. I mean, they, it was it was rough at the end for sure. Um, you know, who would have predicted that the Knicks were going to square up against the Heat in the playoffs in the second round? I mean, if, yeah. if you told me at the beginning of the year, hey, Knicks are going to make it to the second round of the playoffs, I think I could speak for all Knicks fans that were like, we'll take that <laughs> no matter what, even if they had gotten swept from the Heat, which would have been brutal. But, um, you know, I think overall, you can't you can't be upset with the season. I think there was a lot of really cool bright spots. You know, Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson really stepped up. Yeah. Season Jalen Brunson, you know, really showed what kind of playoff performer he is. Like, it's really incredible that this guy basically went in the second round and Dallas. Yeah. You know, like, and the guy, I mean, I was actually, I was just talking about him to another, another young father who's teaching his daughter's basketball and teaching him to dribble with both hands and, yeah. and all that and and I mentioned to him something that I I, I read about Rick Brunson Rick Brunson's Jalen's dad and Rick Brunson was a player on the Knicks too and yeah. when Jalen was a kid he's actually right-handed um oh. and Rick taught him to play basketball left-handed huh. from a child interesting so he, yeah so like it, it's he's like probably the craftiest one of the best left-handed point guards in the league but he's actually ambidextrous because he is right-handed. He was born right-handed. I don't know what he does writing or reading or any of yeah. that stuff. But um, so I think overall I felt good. I mean, honestly, I felt great that RJ played really well in the playoffs because yeah, he has some good minutes, of, some good out games. Of all, yeah, out of all the young Knicks, like he gets the most flack, and uh, it's a big city. It's a big market. You know, he's a top yeah. three pick. Um, but I, I I really loved watching him come into his own it gives gives me a lot of confidence it into who he is as a player the yeah. fact that he came out in the playoffs I think he had like two bad games out of you know seven or eight maybe nine games like two two not great games unfortunately it was like it was the deciding game in the Miami series and then I think the first game in Cleveland he didn't play great but he still played decently and he got like six or seven assists like so I think Overall, the, the state of the franchise is better than it's been since the 90s, which is saying a yeah, lot. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, yeah, just shout out to Jalen. Jalen, if you're listening, you need a breathwork coach. <laughs> let's yeah, let's connect. Sure, sure. But his, his play is so smooth, and I didn't know much about him until like just the end of last year when he got a little bit of buzz. I mean, I knew about him in Villanova broadly, but he is just one of the smoothest players, smoothest guards, most like dependable, yeah. like accurate just I, I don't know I'm just so happy he's a Nick and I guess my next question is who else would you like to see in a Nick uniform next year if they were to make a move who would you like to see yeah. on that team um you know it's funny like I you see him uh Brunson Josh Hart I mean it'd be really cool if they could get Mikel Bridges and like get the Villanova like, that would be crazy like, yeah I don't think it's ever going to happen right now because Brooklyn's never going to trade him to the Knicks, but right, right. That, that would be really cool to see, to see them together. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think, I think the Knicks definitely want to take a big swing to a, a, you know, a top guy, but right now, I mean, I think they like their assets. I think they like the idea that not this draft, but the next four or five drafts, they have multiple first round picks. I think they love their young core. Um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with Obi Toppin because yeah. clearly not getting enough minutes, you know, and obviously Julius Randle had an, had an all NBA season. So it's kind of hard to, to take minutes away from a guy that's, that's basically the engine of the team, but um, you know, it'd be cool to see, see them, see them get 
get another sort of blue collar, smart Villanova type player that knows how to win. Cause that's what happened when Josh Hart got to the team. He, yeah, he took he, their game, everyone's yeah. game elevated. Um, yeah. and he put pressure on, I think he put a little bit of pressure on like Quentin Grimes and RJ Barrett because they all kind of play this wing position. And here you have this like really hungry vet who's coming in and doesn't care how many shots he gets. He doesn't care if he scores me yeah. or two, he's just going to rebound. He's going to move. He's going to run the ball up the court and he's going to, he's going to finish. And, and he was hitting his threes when he came to the team. I think they went on like an eight or nine game win streak the moment he, he got traded. So I think just more guys like that, just like you see the heat now and it, it it's tough for me to give them praise, but someone talked about it recently where they're like it's just a bunch of guys that just want to win they don't yeah. care yeah. how many minutes or what happens and it's the truth like and and I think they take from Jimmy Butler in that sense like that's actually the guy like if the Knicks get Jimmy somehow like that would be ideal <laughs> um so that's a you know that that kind of makes up for us losing Pat Riley to the heat we'll take Jimmy off their hands I know did the Knicks have a draft pick this year I don't know I forget they were supposed to they were supposed to get Dallas's if Dallas fell out of the top 10, but yeah. since Dallas tanked, um, they managed to keep their pick uh, and they traded their pick to Portland for the Josh Hart deal, which I see. was, was yeah. a good, was a good move. Cause they wouldn't have had a good, great pick though. Honestly, the, the, the front office has done a really good job drafting late. You know, they grabbed quickly late. They grabbed Mitchell Robinson late, Quentin Grimes late. Like they That's right. They, yeah, they, they, these guys really are solid good. too. And they're yeah. also showing up. So yeah. it's been fun to watch them. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not necessarily like a number one Knicks fan, but I'm just like a, I, I live in New York, so yeah. I'm rooting for everyone to just succeed. But uh they actually were a pretty impressive team in in some ways. Um I sat next to a guy at a bar once when Miami was playing the Knicks in like the the series, and this guy next to me was a Miami Heat fan and I said, you know, I'm just so proud of. The, I said, just you know, me, I'm very, yes, heartfelt, and I was, yes. I was like, you know, I'm just so proud of the Knicks. Like second round's pretty dope. First time since the '90s. And this guy looked at me, and he was like, "Man, it's pathetic. That's what you're happy about." And I was like, "Would you wake up drinking Haterade?" I was like, "What's right. wrong oh, with listen, you?" That's like, that's that's Heat Nation, man. They, but they, I was they, like, I was like, well, "You're in New York. What's your problem, bro?" And he just yeah. like by the end of the session, you know, our conversation, he was like shaking my hand. So good to talk to you. You know so much about the game, and I'm like, "Yo, don't come at me with that." Right. Are you kidding me? Let's get on the court. You, you light them up. Like, sure. Like, let me find out who who yeah. you uh what you know about this game. But um, he was he had his hater aid, and I just let it let it roll. Yeah, um, the, Heat, the Heat have gotten really. They've had a really good run, you know, since yeah. since since Pat Riley came to the Heat. I mean, they've had. If you look back the last thirty years, twenty thirty years, they. I mean, they probably haven't had more than two bad seasons in a row once. Like they it's have, amazing. One year, they re up and, and I, you know, they talk about culture a lot. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we both obviously work in corporate and right. all of that, but like the culture of the team and just the way they play defense and the fact that their training program going into the season is so rigorous. They're all in such good shape. Crazy shape. Yeah. They're just yeah. so dialed in and there's, they can go for hours, you know, and, um, but let's like talk about culture right there. Right. Like we have a, few more minutes. I don't know if you have a yeah. hard stop in a bit, no. but like you think about like teams, culture, the ways that we like prepare ourselves individually, we breathe, we, um, we get sunlight, we eat food, we put our attention where we want it to be. And then we just think about like organizational culture. Like you have a guy like Pat Riley, right? Like a leader, let's call him like the ultimate leader in the NBA as a player, a coach, a GM. And it's like, 
everything changes when you get a guy like that, or let's say a woman like that, if they're in the right position. And it's just amazing to me that that isn't more, I know it's more complicated. I know Pat has probably many people around him who make him better, but man, I just, I see all these organizations, companies, and actually sports teams in total disarray from like a relationship perspective, like how they treat their players, like players getting drafted and finding out on Twitter, like how hard is it for a GM to call a player and be like, you've been so important to us. We're going to trade you in 10 minutes. Like, why is that that hard? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I think we were talking about it even before we started recording, just the idea of like bringing in veterans, like bringing in these vets, you know, and and like going back to, to my Knicks, you know, seeing them keep a guy like Derek Rose on the bench, who's obviously had the highest level of success on an individual, you know, stage that you have in the NBA and keeping him on the bench, even though, you know, he might be able to get minutes for other teams, but he's talking to guys like quickly. He's talking to guys like, you know, like Deuce McBride and he's like in their Mm -hmm. ear telling them things and he knows tips and he knows how the system is. And that's, that's part of the culture and it's part of the organizational like fabric and it's important these companies and these organizations they have people that get that like even though I didn't like working in tech and sales and all that like I was part of the company culture because I was always there willing to listen to an employee or a colleague having a tough time and and I think you were the same at Parsley like you were bringing people from that office to our sessions and bringing them there and that's that's (laughs) that's upping the like the energy it is yeah Yeah. and like i remember ron was such a good guy like yeah one of my sweet guy and he was so happy to be there with us and like those kinds of experiences like when i was at bevy the last tech company i was with the ceo i like he was my third or fourth interview this guy's brilliant went to mit came up with the idea for our company speaks five languages and we get on a call and I'm thinking like, all right, this will be, you know, the hardest interview I have. It turns out all he wanted to talk about was getting certified with Wim Hof and what's Wim Hof like. And that's Great. all we talked about for 20 minutes. Yeah. Got the job. I negotiated a little bit to get a little bit more money, which I never had done. And then um, I end up going with this CEO, like we become buds. He ends up coming with me to the Russian Banya all the time. And like, yeah, yeah. And then when I'm going to leave the company, he tells me, you know, not to go that I could always come back if I want to work part time for the health insurance, like all these nice things. And like, that's part of the culture, you know, it's like part of that, that experience, you know, and, and I yeah. think, I think that stuff gets lost in translation, like you go back to the other idea of like the analytics and the numbers, that's not always going to be the determining factor and the quality and the productivity or the experience that people go through because employees that are unhappy or or players that are unhappy and they're not they're not connected to the overall goal of what the team is trying to accomplish it's never going to work yeah yeah it's going to be sort of a a turning what's the turn turning table like people coming out of the door whatever the phrase is yeah yeah, Um, a revolving door yeah and I think that I mean I think for the Knicks this year that's what happened when you know not that Cam Reddish was a bad player or didn't fit the culture but when he left and they brought in Josh Hart who clearly fit the culture and clearly could elevate the energy of the team yeah a whole different vibe they if they kept Cam Reddish they might not even have made the playoffs. And that's not even a knock on Cam Reddish. That's just a, that's that's how important Josh Hart was to lifting the whole vibe of the team and the energy of the team. Yeah. 
Well, I think, I don't know, one of the things I'm taking away from this last segment too, is just like energy and relationships are like the glue, right? Like we, we get mimetic, which means we imitate, we want to get the car, we want to get the house, we want to achieve these life milestones, right? And sometimes we get those things. And then we realize, oh, we can't breathe. And we don't have friends to hang out with on a Tuesday night. And so we, I don't know, it's very funny. Intellectually, we know what's most important. Like we actually understand that our last days on this planet or the most magical days of this planet are not about acquiring more wealth or whatever. It's actually these sort of again, these relationships on teams or in being the glue person in your company, like that's actually what's memorable. So, um, I mean, shout out to the breath, (laughs) literally getting us here, keeping us here. And for people like you who are teaching us how to befriend it and, and, and learn how to investigate it during stressful times through breath awareness, uh, how to use it to get calm, to get focused, to get excited. I think your, your work is invaluable. It's always going to be needed. And I'm, I'm curious just to see where you grow it and where you decide to, to take it because, um, I don't think breath or the study of breath will ever have like an ending, right. It's just going to be about how you decide to play with it. And, um, before we close, I have two questions for you. What are you unlearning currently? So I am unlearning, I'm unlearning a lot of my childhood stuff, like going now into my third year coming up in July in being a new father. Um, it's funny because you like have kids, you're like, oh, I'm not going to do that thing my dad or my mom did with me. I'm not going to like, and you almost like joke about it. And then all of a sudden yeah. your kid doesn't listen and runs across like a street or like runs around the pool. And you're like, oh, I did the same exact thing that like my, and yeah. so, it's, you know, trying to unlearn how, how those, how those responses and that, that reaction is like deeply embedded in your system. And it's hard. My wife and I balance each other out in that way. Like she'll let our babies like play in the kitchen while she's cooking and literally pull out every pot and pan around her and, and, and will continue to cook whatever meal we're having. And when I cook and they start like ripping paper towels off the off the roll and like it's a mess I can't like allow myself to relax and just be there and I'm not saying like when it's not about gentle parenting or anything like that it's just like she tells me if I let them play with the pots and pans for 20 minutes and they're occupied it only takes me five minutes to clean up those pot and pans after we have dinner but if stop them from doing that you're not cooking dinner they're not distracted by something. So just let them play with the pots and pans and then cook the dinner and then we'll clean it up afterwards. So it's like unlearning those things, like unlearning the idea that the house is always going to be clean and quiet and orderly. That's just not, it's not what it's going to be. And it's not going to be that way for a long time. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, and what is your definition of unlearning? What kind, what comes to mind when you hear the word unlearning? No, it, 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 it makes me think of like, it makes me think of just all like the programming that I've gotten in my life from school, from, from being that student that didn't want to pay attention in class and being told to sit for eight hours a day and being told to, you know, avoid this or avoid that. Like I found the more I lean into that, that stuff, like walking around my neighborhood without shoes on, you know, and like being kind of like, just a little bit out there and being a little bit more in tune with my own intuition and what my body wants. Yeah. A lot more beneficial to me. If I like stay steady with my programming and like the way I was told to do things, 
and, and I don't think it leads to my overall happiness and the quality of my life suffers because then I'm trying to fit into this mold. I'm trying to fit into this paradigm that I think I'm supposed to be, but I tried that. And that's why I left corporate. And that's why I left all these other careers because it wasn't me. I never felt mm-hmm. like I was living up to my full potential as that yeah. version of me. Yeah. Well, cheers to you uh, sort of gut checking and rewriting your programming and, and creating a playbook that works for you. Um, we're going to do rapid fire to close here. First thing that comes to mind, anything goes, um, audible or hardcover book. Hardcover. Last song you listened to. Last song I listened to. Honestly, it was probably something from Encanto with my daughter in the car. Nice. Uh, yeah. That's that. That's like, it's funny. Spotify tells you your most played songs. Like the first six out of 10 are like, you know, Encanto or something of that nature. A uh, person you look up to the most. Um, it's a good one. Person I look up to the most. It's probably my grandmother who passed. Mm. Most uh, meaningful possession and why? Oh, it was my sauna in Utah, but I sold it. So it wasn't, I guess it wasn't that meaningful. Um my most meaningful possession. I'm not really one for possessions. So it, that's, that's a, that's definitely a tough one. Um, honestly, it's like a pair of Vivo shoes, like a pair of Vivo barefoot shoes. Like they're not meaningful, oh. but they're definitely symbolic of like the life I live right now. It's like, they look funny. They look like, like duck or platypus shoes, but my feet don't fit or work in any other kind of shoe anymore. So it's sort of meaningful, like that I've kind of shifted who I am mm. and, stop looking for that external validation completely obviously it's still there on some level but ultimately now i'm trying to live in a way that that feels best to me in my body best leadership advice you've ever received hmm. it i don't know if it, it necessarily translates exactly to leadership but i remember one of my teachers told me you can't you can't be this breathwork coach, whatever it is, mindset coach, and also have your job and do both things full time and do them both well. Like you have to kind of have to pick a lane and you have to kind of go all in. So if you're going to do something like go all in and actually give it everything you have. And uh, it was important for me to, to kind of really do that. Last two, uh, salty or savory? Salty. Uh, debate question of the podcast is a hot dog, a sandwich. I don't think so. I don't think it's a sandwich. I don't think so. I think the bun, the bun's different than a sandwich. I don't know. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't think of it as a sandwich. I love ending the podcast on that note because no one really knows what to do with that question (laughs) after all this, uh, important talk. Um, Avi, it was great to have you on the podcast. It was great to meet you all those years ago. Um, let us know about your upcoming adventures, your, your experiences that you offer. I think, again, that's what we all need the most. So, um, yeah, give us a shout when you have them ready to, to launch and we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll post it out for you. Um, thanks for being here. Anytime. Thank you. Hey friends. Thanks for listening to the school of unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.